Welcome back to Trending in Education. Today, Dan Schraver, Mike Palmer with you, and we'll discuss the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning and the Science of Learning and so much more. For that, we have two great guests. Before I introduce them, quickly, Mike, want to say hello. How is your week going? What's new in your world? Uh, my week's going great. I'm doing well. I'm over the moon, uh, to, figuratively speaking. Uh, I'm kind of distracted by the fact that we have so much talent on the guest side that I'd like to dispense with, uh, with the amenities, uh, so to speak, and, uh, and really welcome and introduce uh, both uh, Broer and uh, Glenn to the show. So, so thanks to both of you very much uh, for, for being guests uh, on the show. And Absolutely. That is, Happy to be here. And that is Bohr Seisberg, Vice President of Learning Science with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and Glenn Whitman, Director of the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrews Episcopal School. And he wanted to make sure, I also say, an everyday history teacher. What, Glenn, what history do you teach every day? Oh, I, I teach an incredible U.S.-European history to uh, an awesome collection of 10th grade students. And uh, we're still trying to figure out how we defeated the British in the American Revolution uh, this week. It's one of my favorite topics. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here uh, today. Happy to be here. Great. Glad to be here as well. Yeah, so, so I thought we'd begin maybe with uh, Broer, a uh, friend of the show, former, uh, former real chief learning officer at Kaplan. So that was how uh, Dan and I first got to know Broer, uh, who, uh, for those of you who might be interested in our back catalog, we had some wonderful conversations with Broer about learning engineering, about the future of work, uh, and then really just about uh, whatever Broer could impart to us and our listeners in the in the early days. Uh, so, so really, some wonderful conversations that we had with Broer back then. Since then, Broer, you've moved on to uh, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative uh, to head up learning science there. Um, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what Chan Zuckerberg, uh, what the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is, and then uh, what you've been asked to do for uh, CZI? It's also known as CZI, right? Correct. Yeah, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is where uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan uh, have decided to put the vast majority of uh, their uh, wealth over time for the benefit of humanity across a number of different areas. Um, right now, there's kind of three major areas that they work on. Uh, one area is uh, around uh, human health and, and biological science, trying to accelerate progress against human diseases and disorders. Uh, another area is a variety of uh, social justice questions uh, that they're investing in, including criminal justice reform, uh, unaffordable real estate problems, and some other things along those lines. And then the area that I'm in is the education initiative. And what we're trying to do across our several parts of the education initiative is figure out how do we help ensure that all kids and even all adults ultimately end up with fulfilling and productive lives for their entire lives? So how do we make that actually happen? And especially for within my area, how do we ground that in evidence? How do we make sure that people are actually making use of uh, good learning science about what's happening, uh, good measures of what's happening, and especially thinking multidimensionally about this. So um, it's not just an academic issue, uh, you know, how's your math or how's your writing? Mm -hmm. Learning is a multidimensional process. Uh, my colleague Brooke Stafford-Brizard here looks after what we call the whole child initiative, 
which uh, tries to look not just at academic outcomes, but also uh, uh, social and emotional learning outcomes, identity outcomes, um, even cognitive outcomes like working memory and metacognition, things like that, mm -hmm. and even an awareness of you know, uh, physical and mental well-being. Because all those things together have an influence on what you're learning, how you learn, what you need to learn. You know, the funny thing is sometimes the most important learning intervention is breakfast, right? So you can't lose the fact that there, we, we can't separate out these pieces and parts. So, um, and, and my part of this, it's called learning sciences here, but it's really learning engineering, which we've talked about before, this idea that there is a lot of evidence that can be applied about uh, learning from research, but you have to apply it at scale within constraints, mm -hmm. and that's not the norm. So how do we begin to do this kind of work and get this out there? Um, and we're doing a variety of different projects in my area, including some work on learning measurement, uh, various projects on learning engineering itself, some work out in the field with uh, larger sets of uh, teachers and uh, schools uh, to get them to articulate problems of practice, get researchers engaged with them in solving those problems, developers to turn those ideas into useful, usable uh, interventions that then teachers and students can try and we get a nice productive cycle going. Mm -hmm. And then we're also doing some more advanced research work with the, the Gates Foundation that uh, some of your folks may have read about. Mm -hmm. uh, but what, one of the interesting things about uh, you know, the, the learning engineering work that we're doing is really trying to figure out how do we get the word out? How, it's not just about making some better learning interventions for students. I mean, that's part of it. But even more is how do we help uh, the education ecosystem learn about learning science? How do we help them begin to pick up the basics of learning engineering? And this honestly is where this conversation here uh, uh, comes from, which is a recent investment that we've made in uh, this uh, program, NeuroTeach Global, uh, that Glenn is a part of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Glenn, I think that, that brings us uh, to your neck of the woods. Uh, so you've been working at a, a very local level as, uh, as a history uh, teacher and also as someone who's leading the uh, really the whole similar holistic approach really to education and understanding how to, to sort of reach students within uh, the, the St. Andrews School itself. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what you've been building maybe more at a local level and then uh, towards the end, I think we can start to connect the dots where, uh, you know, some you've been doing good enough work, uh, really um, like exemplary work, uh, honestly, at the local level that got you on to uh, Chan Zuckerberg's radar. And that's really led us to where we are today. So can you talk a little bit about the, the type of work you've been doing and and what kind of uh, led led you to the point that uh, CZI noticed you and uh, and now we're sort of at this this the sort of next level where you're getting the funding and we're trying to figure out how what worked on a local level might scale uh, to to a larger audience. Sure, sure. No, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, I, I would say the journey to today's conversation actually it probably began over a decade ago in 2007. Our school asked itself a, big, a, a generative question. You know, what is the next frontier? or what is the future for taking our good teachers to great and our, our great teachers to expert, which I would actually argue is a discussion we should be having at every level of education. Mm 
so what do we do? Well, we, we a less than empirical study, but we surveyed our faculty, right? Um, and you can imagine the topics that came up, you know, let's, let's figure out uh, multicultural education. Let's figure out project-based learning, tech integration, data-driven decision, I mean, decision-making. You, you guys could have come up with a list. I think our list was like 22 topics. But then we asked a, a really simple question was, how many of us had ever read a book about the brain or been to a conference on the brain or about brain science? Mm -hmm. And in a self-reported survey, so we know that we got a lot of scholars in the room here, right? That data is, is skewed, um, about 20% had said they've read a book about the brain and brain science. So mm -hmm. we were like, maybe we should play in this space. Um, Cause you know, I'm from New Jersey. So here's my little snarky moment, right? I mean, um, you know, there, there are a few educational truths. One I can say uh, definitively is that every day, every kid will bring his or her brain to school. Right. Right. <laughs> so now whether it's used well or not is, it's certainly the shared authority between teacher and student. But so in 2007, our school made a very strategic decision. And it was just really about a question. What if we trained 100% of the teachers and school leaders in educational neuroscience? Um, and that's what we did. I mean, uh, so we not only done that, we've been able to sustain that threshold of any new teachers to the school. Mm -hmm. um, and we, to this day, um, have become a leader in this space because we're one of the few schools, one that said, you know, we need to know as much as possible about the science behind how the brain learns, works, and thrives. Mm -hmm. um, every teacher at the school should know it. And then what we started doing was we started creating resources. We, we created a publication, a very small one, to just tell the story of the journey of our faculty. Um, and then I guess the best thing is people started to call us and said, hey, do you have any workshops? We said, no. Do you have any uh, publications? No. Can we come visit? Yes, but I'm not too sure what you're looking for. But then we knew we might be on to something. And that's when we launched the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning in the spring of uh, uh, 2011. Really not with an, an international ambition like we have today. Could we take great care of our St. Andrews teachers and students? But then also can we do our responsibility and share that with public charter and private schools around the world mm -hmm. to just say, here, try this out. And that's, that got us on this track. And ultimately my colleague and I, the head of research at the CTTL um, sat down because of the external demand and wrote a book called NeuroTeach. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the game changer, right? I mean, all of a sudden we wrote something that, you know, you don't know if people are going to read it or not, but I can speak to this, this year. And so it's 2018. 27 different schools around the world, their whole school population, teacher populations are actually reading the book. So clearly there is this gap and that teachers want to fill mm -hmm. about trying to figure out, first of all, what is the robust neuro truths out there that we can safely say we should be using to inform, transform or validate our practices. Mm -hmm. um, and then what might that look like in how we design classes, how we work with each individual student um, every day in our schools? Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately that has led us, um, uh, you know, I, I, I distinctly remember about over a little over a year and a half ago, Broar challenged an audience to, can you leverage technology to bring the science of learning to more teachers and educators? Mm -hmm. um, 
I think he quietly said it shouldn't be a MOOC and it shouldn't be a video series. Um, and our response was, can we take our book, NeuroTeach? Can we take the in-person programming of the CTTL, which includes our Science of Teaching and School Leadership Academy, and deliver that virtually in some new way? And that led us to NeuroTeach Global. Wow. And for us, you know, as they began this journey and began plotting what they wanted to do uh, and, and kind of uh, connected with us, you know, what we could see from CCI is this was a group that was taking this seriously. They already had experience doing the training work mm -hmm. and they really had this ambition to try to get out, to try to expand uh, beyond the, just the person-to-person -person, uh, training work that they'd already begun doing mm -hmm. to really be helpful at, at real scale. And then finally, that they were actually, and this sounds silly, but they, they were interested in applying the science of learning to the professional development itself. Mm -hmm. You know, just as Glenn said, kids bring their brains to school every day. I'm pretty sure teachers do uh, too. I well mean, I know. Played. I, well played. <laughs> so, subtle insight. That's why, you know, that, yeah. that's, that's why they pay us the big bucks, Glenn. And, <laughs> and, and but this is an important piece, right? That the teachers too, that the way they learn mm -hmm. is uh, as uh, circumscribed by what they already know and their motivation and, and their time availability and so forth. And Glenn and team at the CTTL, we really found they were planning to take this pretty seriously. And so that's how we kind of got engaged in doing some pilot work. And then ultimately now, uh, you know, uh, a larger uh, uh, investment to really help them uh, get going. And so they are just a great example of learning engineering uh, uh, pointed at teachers and learning engineered for teachers, but helping teachers understand how to apply learning science in their own environments for their own issues. So it's a great example of the kind of thing we're trying to do. Yeah, it's fantastic. You guys are uh, bringing new meaning to uh, BYOB, uh, which I hadn't, uh, hadn't really made that connection uh, uh, thus far. So, uh, so that's, that's, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, it is, it is interesting also to think about the holistic approach uh, when it comes to the learner. But it also seems like you guys are also thinking holistically about the, the, the educators that you work with as well, where like in many ways, uh, we're not always doing a good enough job equipping our frontline educators with the, the understanding of things like neuroscience and things like holistic, uh, you know, education uh, of, of the students they're, they're working with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about that? Like what's, uh, you know, what are some of the unmet needs maybe that are there for, uh, for a typical educator, uh, the folks you're trying to reach uh, with uh, NeuroTeach and CTTL? Um, and, and CZI yeah, me, more broadly. Yeah, let, let me start and then Glenn, you can take it to the specifics of some of the key things you're, you're doing with your tool. Yeah. So in a sense, the, 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 a key piece that seems to be missing for lots of teachers who really want to do a great job is they, they don't have practical ways of using and understanding uh, science of learning results in their classrooms. They don't, they don't have exposure to what we know about the science of learning, things about, you know, um, media and attention and working memory and long-term memory and expertise. But it's not enough to just read the science, right? You, people, you could read the science. That doesn't mean you know what to do with those results in your classroom settings, problem solving your classrooms. 
And this is why, you know, I sometimes, as you know, uh, Mike and company like to use the term learning engineering, this idea of an application of the science of learning in practical circumstances under constraints in the real world, but informed by the science, right? That's the kind of thing we're after. So th this is then part of what uh, Glenn and the CTTL have then been working on is how to bring it to teachers and make it be real, including the practice and feedback. Glenn, do you want to talk more about uh, what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think investing in the human teacher that, that is still really critical. We, we know that from research, that's the difference maker. You put a high quality teacher in front of students, that is how we're gonna close achievement gaps, enhance outcomes, and, and really enhance the well-being and the, the, the school experience, but hopefully the life experience of the kids. Um, and again, from our data, so from our experience, we've been in front of, we've trained, collaborated with, worked with probably just about 10,000 educators, and we do this snapshot survey with them. And, and this idea that 20 to about 25% of the teachers will say they have foundational knowledge in the science of learning is, is, holds up pretty well, actually, internationally. So there's this huge gap in almost any school setting of, of roughly about 80% mm -hmm. um, that we want to close. Right, we, we, we often see ourselves as the bridge. The CTTL is the bridge between the researcher who has an expertise and experience that we don't have and the everyday classroom teacher and school where we live every, every day. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're in this privileged position of trying to figure out how to bridge that gap. Bridge that gap. Um, and the way we've gone about it is really thinking about the teacher brain and three key elements around the science of learning they need to have. And, and number one is they, we, we talk about mindset, right? All teachers need to believe they're brain changers. And maybe that's too simplistic, but they actually, they actually are. Mm -hmm. um, we also need teachers to think that they're researchers. They are collecting data, observable data, and making judgments on that data every day. Mm -hmm. Could they develop a more methodical engineering approach that they could actually do real time um, to make... Uh, to make the judgments they make and the decisions they make on those judgments and observations actually more successful. So we think about mindsets. Uh, every teacher should know fundamentally this concept of neuroplasticity. Uh, if you don't believe in neuroplasticity, um, to us that, that's the first place we always start with schools and we do it in a fun way. Just so you know, we even had a, in our academy, we have uh, uh, educators dissect sheep's brains. Uh, so imagine 200 teachers dissecting a sheep's brain uh, as a, a foray into learning about uh, neuroanatomy. <laughs> if we can get teachers in the right mindset around, hey, the science of learning can give me a broader lens into thinking about the whole child, mm -hmm. then it's what knowledge do they need? What is the research? As, as Bora alluded to, um, you know, memory, is, there's great robust research around memory. Um, feedback, how we are giving kids feedback. How do we teach and coach kids to think more metacognitively so they can graduate schools saying, this is who I am as a learner. Here's how I best learn currently. And then ultimately, and I think this is where we love our partnership with CZI um, for a variety of reasons, but one is how do you figure out how to translate that knowledge into everyday practice? Mm -hmm. You know, How do you determine what a student needs, a class needs, a grade needs, a school needs, um, and then act on it using the best research that's available. But understanding this, uh, research is context dependent. I mean, 
most of the research and studies we use with our St. Andrews students every day, almost, what, 99% have been studies that have been done elsewhere in the world. And we just need to see, do they work in our context with our kids? And that's where the professional judgment of the teacher is really critical, mm -hmm. but also where if we can create new positions in schools, learning engineers, right, we have a head of research, then I think we're on to something in terms of supporting teachers in this journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And uh, just to, to clarify for our listeners, because clearly Dan and I know this, but uh, when you talk about neuroplasticity, ah. uh, can you just provide a quick, uh, quick recap of what, what, what that concept means? Yeah, Broad, uh, I mean, to me, it's very, I simplify it as a lifelong ability through both uh, nature and nurture for the brain to change. The good news is, even at my age, I know I'm not the oldest one in the room uh, or the virtual room. Uh, there's hope for me. I could, I could pick up a golf club and maybe learn with 10,000 hours of training. So that might be a neuromyth. Uh, I get on the PGA tour one day. Right. Well, well and, and it really is a critical piece here that there are a lot of people who walk around uh, and they're adults as well as kids and they have a view of their own uh, mental capabilities as being fixed in some way. You know, the classic thing is I'm no good at math mm -hmm. or I am not a good writer, right? And, uh, you know, all the evidence suggests that aside from a small fraction of some organic issues that might dyslexia things or some things around math, for the most part, no, the issue is you haven't had enough of the right kind of practice and feedback mm -hmm. to build the fluencies you need to then keep going. And so it's really a matter of the correct practice and feedback, the correct effort, um, and your brain will change. It's like muscles. I mean, this is the classic Carol Dweck analogy, which is your mind is like a muscle that, you know, when you use it, it changes. And, uh, and that is true, I, the research now says, at all ages. Um, it was actually the research community, I think, before the late 1960s, actually thought that adult brains were fixed. And I think it was around that time that the term neuroplasticity came out as they discovered that, no, it, it changes uh, a lot based on use and feedback and so forth, which, which is why you have to have this double vision, as CTTL does, that says, we are going to change teacher minds and teacher brains so that they are better at helping student minds and brains to change. Mm -hmm. and that it is not a hopeless quest at all on either side. It is actually entirely possible to do it if you present the right practice and feedback and you get them motivated to engage and put in the effort to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, th and this is one of the challenges that, you know, sometimes people wish they could make learning easy. You know, the classic thing about they won't even notice that they're learning. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. They're going to notice they're learning. It's, it's going to be work. It's going to be work. Mm -hmm. and, and the trick is to accept that, just like you do with working out. It, you know, it's not supposed to feel easy. You know, if you're not sweating, you're not working out. And this is as true, I think, of really pushing how your mind works as it is of how you can push how your body works. Yeah, yeah I love where you're going there around motivation, Roar, too, because like, I do think there's a lot of uh, uh, social-emotional understanding of the educator as a human who needs to trust the people who are giving her the intervention that she needs to lean into to, to, to really grow herself and then model that behavior in front of her classroom. So like the idea of like not giving short shrift to um, the, the more emotional, non-cognitive aspects of 
of any learning intervention is something I know we've talked about uh, over the years at Kaplan. And uh, it sounds like it's very central to a lot of what, uh, what CZI is going after. Uh, and then Glenn, it sounds like what uh, CTTL is really uh, succeeding at on a local level. Um, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts too on the challenge of expanding from a local success on a small scale to a broader uh, initiative that's really designed uh, to reach uh, a more massive scale, really. Um, any thoughts on any of that, whether it's the, the non-cognitive emotional side or some of the challenges of uh, bridging from what might be uh, an enormous success on a local level, uh, then translating that to the scale uh, that, that CZI might actually uh, empower for you. Uh, maybe start with you, Glenn, and then, uh, and then uh, pick up with Brewer. Yeah, I mean, how much time you got? Uh, I would, uh, I'll address the first one. I, you know, I'm an, I, I can declare this, and to my former students, hopefully listening, and you better be listening. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm an exponentially better teacher of history today than I was 25 years ago when I first started. And, and I'll tell you what, I know my, uh, you know, I know my content excellent. I'm not worried about my content knowledge. Um, but I think you, 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 you alluded to it. I think about emotion and learning in very different ways. Um, and, and it was only after I knew a little more about neuroanatomy than my ninth grade bio teacher told me, right, that the limbic system is so intertwined with getting that rich content and experience and thinking into your sort of prefrontal cortex, right? Now I might be talking a foreign language to most teachers, but I would argue just knowing that level of neuroanatomy has made me rethink how I design my classes and how I think about kids who are having an emotionally loaded day. Every kid brings their identity to every class, right? So how do we validate his or her identity? Everybody brings their breakups, their loves, you know, home life. And, you know, to think that doesn't impact higher order thinking is, is probably a naivety that I actually had early on in my career. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I'm a better history teacher today because I don't think about separate emotion. They don't leave their emotions at the door. They don't leave themselves at the door. Um, and I think that's really critical. So if there's a win where neuroscience and neuroanatomy needs to be known by every educator, the connection between emotion and cognition would be placed, I would, uh, you know, we, we go first in our, in our thinking and training. Uh, I'll let Broer res maybe respond to the social and emotional piece, and then I can sort of tell you a little bit about our, our journey from local to national. Well, I, I think, you know, what Glenn is describing for his students um, also applies to how they and we are trying to think about teachers, too, that teachers, too, bring uh, their own identity and their own sense of what they're good at or not good at, their own fears and their own lives, into their professional development as well as into their teaching every day. And so I think, uh, you know, we're thinking about that in many circumstances from a CZI standpoint, but it's, it's nice to see how the NeuroTeach Global uh, uh, software work tries to make something that, that really fits a typical teacher's uh, uh, schedule, agenda, timing, uh, uses uh, situations that are very familiar to teachers so that teachers don't get scared off right away by, oh, I can't do this. This is like exotic learning science, right? It's rather, no, no, this is a class situation that's going on here. I mean, and then, you know, little bits and pieces, small practice efforts along the way, which are really making use of how our learning systems work, 
together with the motivation of, I recognize this, I, I understand what this is, and a little humor along the way too, I think. So, but Glenn, maybe say a little bit more about the, you know, actual NeuroTeach global kind of instructional design. Uh, that, that, that's a set, so here's the spike. Thanks, Bor. Um, I would say this, you know, it, it still comes down to get to the student brain, you gotta go through the teacher brain, right? And I would, I, and I would also like to say, it's not just the teacher brain, we, it's that school leader brain. The, the administrator sometimes feels like they're on the outs in this, no, when we work with schools and we work with schools around the world, we, 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 it's a 100% model. Everybody's in. You know, generally professional development does not lead to actionable change in a teacher's practice, right? The, there, there are sometimes nice events. I think there was a study out from the UK, a teacher development trust. 1% of professional development led to the teacher doing something new in their class. That's a, that's a little depressing. Yeah. So when, again, I, I give, you know, I don't think he takes a lot of credit, but I remember Bohr was in DC. He challenged the audience to leverage technology to bring the science of learning to teachers. And to be honest, we had no clue how to do that, right? MOOCs we know are, you know, are good for some, but not for a lot. Video series, no. And then we, you know, we got lucky. We were, we were at South by Southwest EDU. We, we by luck ran into this software firm um, that had this micro learning experience platform. The firm's called Talented. Um, and lo and behold, they present content to professional learners in three to five minute chunks. So let's respecting the time teachers have, mm -hmm. um, in storyfied experiences, you know, the power of story as a learning tool should not be limited to the student, right? It, uh, and what we're finding is what, what if PD had a, a, a fictional classroom in which the research that Bohr has been embedded in for years is embedded into stories mm -hmm. and there was feedback loops built in. So that's how we sort of approach NeuroTeach Global. Um, they are three to five minute chapters. They can be done making uh, toast or at the Metro. Um, you know, we all stand in supermarket lines still, well, some of us, um, I guess. Um, and it was a gateway to begin elevating the exposure to thousands of teachers around the world in, in this content that I would argue every teacher should have when they first walk in a classroom. Mm -hmm. um, and we know enough about the learning brain now and the science behind it to give them that foundational research. Um, a couple of elements in Teach Global, you know, we want to change teachers' behaviors through it, right? So not only one element that I'm particularly interested in is um, not by, as teachers engage in the platform, in each micro course um, that are spaced out. So you can't binge watch it like Netflix, right? Which is really important for the adult learner, right? Yep, yep. Uh, you know, a little spacing and a little forgetting is actually really good for learning. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dan Willingham says it, right? Learning happens when you think hard, right? So we want, how do you replicate that online? But there's also an element, there's an altruistic element to a NeuroTeach Global that I, I really love in that the more you engage in it, you accrue these gems or, or, or points that actually allows for under-resourced schools and under-resourced teachers around the world to gain access to NeuroTeach Global, mm -hmm. which uh, to be honest, I mean, in, you know, so there's this greater good while you're serving your own professional element, you are actually allowing other teachers around the world to we never get this touch point uh, to get access to it. And again, uh, that, 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 that excites me. And we just finished our pilot just so you know, uh, we had about a three-month pilot since September. We had, our end was we had 725 teachers 
um, 13 countries, uh, 23 states participated in, in piloting every element in Nora Teach Global, which we are launching at the, uh, uh, right at the end of January. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and this, this to me is, you know, what, what's so exciting about this is the way in which uh, this kind of uh, tool can really help teachers begin to take advantage of learning science, understand it, see it in action, begin to use it in their own heads as they're thinking through these problems and situations that the platform presents to them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, in these shorter chunks, which allow, which, you know, end up maximizing learning because they have that concentrated piece and then a relaxation piece, and then you have to come back and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so to, to a teacher, it's easy to do, it's easy to use, but it's actually well-crafted to try to take advantage of all of these subsystems that are part of a teacher's uh, learning machinery, uh, mm -hmm. just like they are part of their own students' learning machinery. And so the opportunity to, to, to do this at scale, to have lots of teachers benefit, uh, and that extra opportunity that you described, Glenn, uh, to actually help other teachers get access to it who might not otherwise do it. Uh, this is all pretty exciting stuff to see. Yeah, yeah but, you know, and, there's, uh, and I'll just say, there, there, you know, uh, feedback is critical to the adult learner. So within the game experience, uh, um, there's immediate feedback, um, you know, by some Q and A. There's also um, every uh, every two chapters, teachers are asked to upload real-world missions, like you know, create an exit ticket to end the class, or record a quick conversation about mindset uh, with a student, and you get feedback within 72 hours, uh, which we know is critical. And then we know at the end, we also have a performance and engagement sort of heat chart, which gives you sort of more, you know, a micro course, um, holistic feedback as well. And th those feedback loops are really critical for teachers to, you know, think metacognitively about their own practice and their, and their own journey. I, I will say this, uh, um, you know, regardless if the future of education includes virtual reality or AI, and, and it certainly might, um, the brain is always going to be in some level, maybe the organ of learning. So, you know, it's, it's a, we're playing the long game here. In our schools, the perfect example, an initiative that started in 2007 is still going on. It's not too many times public schools, private schools, charter schools, they have these one-year initiatives. Okay, I'll check off the project-based learning box, move on to the next thing. Yep. Well, I mean, project-based learning should be part of your school forever. Or uh, science of learning should be part of your school forever. Mm -hmm. uh, the good thing is we built NeuroTeach Global also in three levels. So, you know, the experience can be sustained. And, you know, and our ultimate goal, our big pie in the sky is, you know, maybe this will be a pathway to graduate certification or some other incentives that keeps our best and brightest in education, but also in the cutting edge of education on the research side. Yeah, it makes me, makes me think of the, the old saw, you know, think globally and act locally uh, and also start by starting, you know. So, like, I think a lot of people wait uh perhaps until the perfect time to get going and uh and really st andrews is a great example of people who rolled up their sleeves and started to address the problem at a local level and then the great news is that you can then connect to a more global community of practice and there are initiatives like uh chan zuckerberg out there uh there are organizations that are really there to support you because the other thing that does strike me you know we've talked to a lot of educators on this show Teaching can be a very uh, isolating uh, profession and you don't always feel connected. And, you know, that's one really interesting thing about a global initiative 
is that you start to be you start to be able to connect to a broader community of people who care about education, who care about teaching, and you start realizing you maybe you're a little bit less alone uh, than it might feel sometimes when you know getting back to the whole teacher. You're like you're stressed. You're teaching a class. You're juggling multiple demands on your time. Realizing that there's a network out there that that wants to help and is in support of your uh, your own growth. Um, that's, that's just amazing stuff. I did want to get a little bit into, because uh, we're, we're getting, uh, you know, maybe close towards the end of this conversation, could go on uh, at length, and we'd love to continue this conversation. Um, one of the things that, um, that I know NeuroTeach is about uh, is uh, uh, educating folks on what's true of uh, neuroscience, but also uh, debunking uh, some of the, the misperceptions and the neuromyths that are out there. Um, we've done a we've done a few shows along these lines uh, on trending in education, but with the the expertise that we have uh, at our uh, disposal right now, uh, I'd love to hear from from both of you really around what are some of the neuro myths that you think are are out there that are pervasive that maybe are, are most dangerous, uh, and then uh, and then some that you know any others that you might find uh, entertaining or amusing, but. Uh, but like, what are, are, are there any there out there that, uh, that are probably damaging and are surprising uh, to, to debunk? Go for it, Glenn. I mean. No, my, the, uh, the one I always, like, you know, and we, we, we've thought of, we, we go after neural myths in fun ways. We have a fun card game. Uh, we certainly built it into the book NeuroTeach and it's very much embedded, uh, interleaved into the NeuroTeach global experience. You know, I, uh, I remember after, uh, and I say this because I'm actually sitting not too far from where he lives, uh, Dan Pink's book, uh, I think it was called Why Right Brainers Will Rule the World. And I remember a really interesting story. Uh, a student of mine came into my history class and I gave him a, an assessment and, and they said, well, I'm a right brainer, I can't do this. And I, and I you know, I think that myth that, um, that you're a right brainer or a left brainer and being unaware of the corpus callosum and that you know, learning happens in both hemispheres of the brain, maybe not equally. And the reason why I jump on that one quickly is because by calling yourself a right-brainer or a left-brainer, it just creates this fixed mindset that Brewer referenced earlier. And I, and I think if there's one thing, and I know there's a lot of discussion around mindset and Carol Dweck's work and Angela Duckworth's work out there, um, I just think as we can continually to minimize a kid's thinking that they are, they are defined already. This is who I am at 10, 15, or, or even I'm 49, I feel I'm a kid. Um, and I think that right brain, left brain myth we is one I just would love to squash. So hopefully you have a 10 million people who listen to this podcast and we're done with that one. Awesome. I can, I can rip through a couple of others. Please. Uh, maybe lots of others, but... Um, <laughs> One I think that is particularly damaging in the in the um, uh, materials and and teaching materials world is a kind of a a false instructional design idea that engagement just by itself leads to learning. So if if we can just make this really engaging with music or costumes or singing or something, the kids will pay attention. And therefore, their learning will go up, right? <laughs> and the problem is, they may be paying attention, but to what? 
the silly floppy hat that Borges put on to look like a pirate or something like this, they're not necessarily actually engaging with the content itself. So there is a correct way of talking about this, which is yes, multiple media are actually very valuable to use, but they have to be about the same thing. They have to be about the, uh, the, the learning outcome or the concept that you're working on. They can't be distractors. So that's an example. Another one uh, is uh, this notion that it's always good for learners to choose their own learning that that's always just great. And that it turns out it depends on the learner, that if a learner is brand new to an area, it turns out they often will not make the best choice because how would they choose? They don't, they don't know what to do next or how to do it. Whereas learners who start to get a little good at something, they actually do make some good choices about what to do next or how to do it. And this kind of thing that novices work very differently than experts actually has its own term. It's called the expertise reversal effect. And so you really have to think about what kind of learner do I have? Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons you really want to distinguish who's in your class between who's truly novice and who's truly expert, because you may need different techniques for the two of them. Mm -hmm. And I guess the last one here at the end is the, is the classic neuromyth, uh, Glenn, of learning styles, right? Which yeah. is, this, and it's, it's just so pervasive and, and boy, it would be great if it was true. This idea that, hey, you, could, you might be a visual learner or a kinesthetic learner or an, uh, uh, an audio learner or maybe an olfactory learning. I mean, there's some way to teach calculus with, you know, smells that I can't go into in a mixed company, but it's just crazy. Anyway, and you know, it's just not the case that brains can be bucketed that way. It, it, but it would be so convenient if you could. About every 10 to 15 years, somebody who really wants this to be true does some very careful experimental work to do a randomized controlled trial to demonstrate that we've got it now, a classification of brains and a diagnostic method and different instructional methods for each that's gonna be better than just well-designed single instruction. And so far, no one has been able to do it. And so it's an example of, it, there may be a way to classify brains that is helpful, but so far, no one has found one that stands up uh, in terms of evidence. Um, and you just have to accept it's messy. Now, the part of that that is actually correct is that for complicated things, you need multiple ways of teaching. You, you want to have an audio way. You want to have a visual way. You want to have a kinesthetic way. I'm not so sure about olfactory, but you want different ways of doing it. And it's just you can't predict which one will necessarily work better. Mm -hmm. But if you try the audio one, it doesn't work. Well, let's do the kinesthetic one. If that one doesn't work, well, let's try the visual one. Because different time of day, different topic areas, you, one of those might hit. So you need the variability. It's just not as predictable as we wish. And I think at the end of the day, so much of our instructional environments right now are built around the way we wished learning worked. Mm -hmm rather than the sometimes very inconvenient way that it actually works. And so we just have to pay more attention to how it actually works to help our teachers master new ways of doing things and also help our kids master their new ways of doing things. And, and that's what NeuroTeach Global, I think, is all about. Wow. Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I don't know if our listeners can hear Dan and I nodding uh, pro uh, prodigiously uh, throughout uh, the knowledge you guys are imparting. Uh, Fantastic conversation. Really loved having both of you on. You guys are doing great work, uh, and it's 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 a it's amazing to see 
what's working on a local level, beginning to scale uh, through, uh, through really, uh, you know, initiatives like Jan Zuckerberg that are really looking for these opportunities to, to find when we're winning and figure out how to extend that win uh, really to a global scale. I mean, the fact that you're talking about uh, 20-something countries who are able to partake of this, like it's, it's kind of amazing when you do think about the reach of, uh, of some of the, the global tools that are emerging. And uh, I'm sure we'll all want to continue uh, this conversation. Uh, Dan, uh, any, uh, any parting thoughts uh, from your side? Well, as always, uh, great content here. If you want to find out more about NeuroTeach, uh, neuroteach.us and also uh, vcttl.org for more, chanzuckerberg.com, the brand new chanzuckerberg.com. So check that out uh, for uh, more information therein. Uh, great conversation. Uh, Glenn, as a fellow Jersey-born and bred uh, individual, I need to challenge you here as we leave. Uh, what's next? Like, What's on the horizon? What are the next steps? We've heard what's, what we've come through. What's the next phase for... Uh, the global initiative and, and what are the next steps we'll see in 2019? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, we, um, after some very intense piloting and, and pressure testing and, you know, one of the things I love about working with CZI and, and the CTTLs, we're both learning organizations. You know, we know we, we are not going to have it perfect when we, you know, yet, right? Um, and that, that's actually a good modeling of, uh, of, of a growth mindset, I guess. Uh, we will launch NeuroTeach Global right at the end of January, our uh, level one uh, um, for teachers around the world who are interested. Uh, what is unique in our, in our funding relationship with CZI is we intentionally built in some subsidies and scholarships for schools to help them get out of the gate and to pilot this at their schools. And I really appreciate uh, that. And then, you know, we're already thinking, you know, maybe NeuroTeach Global with some virtual reality glasses might make it even more realistic. So uh, maybe somebody at CZI has, has some thoughts on that. But, uh, you know, uh, I think we're going to learn. Our, our job in 2019 is to learn a lot from the initial users, iterate, and keep, keep developing it so it really meets the teachers in all school settings, regardless of geography. But more importantly, that the students that they get to work with every day are the, are the true beneficiaries of this work. If you need any uh, test subjects for virtual reality, I'll raise my hand for that. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch in the future. Of course, uh, Glenn and uh, Brewer, thanks so much for your time. Uh, hope to have you guys on again in 2019. Best of luck with your initiatives here and the next steps in the programs. Uh, we appreciate it as always. You've been listening to Trending in Education. Find us on Twitter at Trending in Ed. Same on Facebook. Uh, find us at TrendingInEducation.com. We'll be back with you again with a new episode next week on Trending in Education.